Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Welcome to As a Woman, Fertility Hormones and Beyond. I'm your host, Dr. Natalie Crawford, and I am a board-certified OBGYN and fertility physician and also co-founder of Fora Fertility in Austin, Texas. Each week on this podcast, I discuss health and fertility and how they relate to your true self. Become a part of the community of collaboration that amplifies others as a woman. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, and welcome back to the As A Woman podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Natalie Crawford, and today we are diving in to more of your fertility questions. I'm a board-certified OBGYN and REI, so I am a fertility doctor, and I love helping you understand your body better. I have so much content out there, but one thing I know is that hearing other people's questions and then the answer really helps you learn the best. So this is why this is my Q&A series where you call and leave a voicemail and we answer it. And these are my absolute favorite episodes. So if you have a question you want to leave on the voicemail, please go ahead and call 657-229-3672. Again, that is 657-229-3672. Leave your voicemail and we would love to answer it. You'll also find a question box over on Instagram every Monday at Natalie Crawford MD. Some of these questions will be answered on Instagram, some will be answered at the end of other podcast episodes, and some will be answered in the newsletter. You can sign up for the newsletter at nataliecrawfordmd.com slash newsletter, where you will get all types of information about products, recipes, fertility in the news, Q&A, and more. And if you really are ready to take a deep dive into your fertility, lifestyle, optimizing your outcomes, and even IVF and embryo transfer, check out the courses over on the website. Today's Q&A is all focusing around your body, your anatomy, uterus, and fallopian tubes. I will say that my kids love to play this category game where there's no hesitation and no repeats. And when we were on vacation recently, my son is eight and my daughter is nine. They played body parts. And my son's first body part out of his mouth was uterus and I just felt like I was winning as a mom. I think my husband was half mortified that that's the eight-year-old boy's answer, but it's a body part and I'm glad they know it and we don't talk about them enough. So let's learn more about our body today. Hi, Dr. Natalie. Love your show. My husband and I are currently being a fertility specialist in Atlanta. So far, all of our blood work is okay. I do have a uterine septum and he has 
low motility and morphology. I have a hysteroscopy scheduled in two weeks. I have had a DNC before, so I'm a bit nervous about having another uterine surgery. The post-op instructions I was given don't include any antibiotics. They don't do the balloon that you've talked about. And there's no post-op imaging, I guess, to make sure that everything went okay. And then they just wanted to jump right into IUI after a few weeks of hormones for recovery. And I also wasn't very comfortable. They wanted me to be on birth control for eight weeks prior, and they didn't really seem like there was an alternative treatment plan. They just said they would send in progesterone only to make me more comfortable, I guess. And I was just wondering if you thought maybe it would be worth getting a second opinion from a different fertility specialist or if IUI was even a feasible option for us. And instead of just jumping right into IVF, um, let me know what you think. Thanks. Bye. All right. Such a good question. And I'm going to break it down because there is a lot going on here. Number one, to answer the last question first, I don't know the answer about IUI versus IVF. Certainly IUI, the goal of IUI is to try to get you closer to whatever your natural pregnancy rate could be based on your age. Depending on other factors, it may be even lower than that, like unexplained infertility Now, IVF will always exceed your age-related chance of getting pregnant, especially if you're doing genetic testing. So based on length of time, whole history, your age, the entire picture, that will answer that question. When it comes to surgery into the septum, we should always feel comfortable with whoever's operating on us, and it should go both ways. So if you have further questions, you should be able to ask them, or if you don't know the plan or you don't feel good with the plan, schedule another visit, ask questions about the plan. Sometimes we think we explain things well, but it's at a moment when maybe there's a lot going on because you just had a procedure and I think you're getting it, but there's a disconnect. So if there's ever questions, you can always ask for an appointment with your doctor and ask the questions. You can always get another opinion. You want to go to surgery with somebody you feel comfortable with. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Ritual. Did you know that women were excluded from clinical research policy by federal law until 1993? But women belong in scientific research. They're essential and Ritual knows this. I choose Ritual multivitamin every day because it is easy to take and I know that I am getting high quality and traceable ingredients in a clean and bioavailable forms. In fact, Ritual conducted a university-led human clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy, and the results showed increase in vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. No more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin that you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com A-A-W. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash A-A-W for 25% off. Thank you, Ritual. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Quince. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune. And luckily, I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. 
The best part is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands, but Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the cost of the middleman, passing the saving to us, and only working with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. I personally cannot wait to wear my cute tan linen set this summer. So it's your turn to get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash A-A-W for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash A-A-W to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash A-A-W. Thank you, Quince. When it comes to septums, what is a septum? Interestingly, the uterus is formed in two different little buds of tissue inside a fetus. And these tissue buds elongate, fuse together, and then the midline portion reabsorbs. These tissue buds form the upper one-third of the vagina, the cervix, the uterus, and the fallopian tubes. Lower two-thirds of the vagina is a different embryological origin, meaning different tissue bud. Ovaries, different embryologic origin, different tissue. Upper one-third of vagina, cervix, uterus, fallopian tubes. Birth defects can really happen anywhere along this process meaning these tissue buds can totally fail to develop at all, or one can fail, or they can fail to fuse, or they can fuse not all the way, or the most common is a septum. And that is failure of the midline portion to reabsorb completely. Septums can be really, really different, and I think that's important just as an overall picture. You can have a very mild septum, So it's just at the top of the uterus and maybe just because of length of infertility or reproductive history like miscarriage or the fact that you're doing expensive treatments, they want to make sure they're optimizing everything. And you can also have something called a complete septum where that septum is going the entire way through the uterus, all the way down even through the cervix and even into the upper vagina. Those are much more significant when it comes to reproductive outcome. And the surgery you do is different. Now, most septums that are one third of the way into the uterine cavity or more, then I am going to, when I resect it, put in a balloon and do estrogen and do antibiotics. There are septums that are smaller than that, that I still take out. And sometimes I don't do the balloon or I don't do the entire recovery or the imaging after. So I know that that's hard to know as humans, we love it to be if this, then that, and it's just very clear cut. I would say sounds like you've had a DNC in the past. So if you've had miscarriage before, I tend to be more conservative, meaning put the balloon, do the estrogen antibiotics, do the post-op imaging. It does take time, but that's really the only thing. But I think it's important just for the listener to hear that Even I don't always do a balloon. I'm gauging whether I think it's indicated based on what I am seeing. And situations are different. The body is different. No two symptoms are going to be the same. But you should ask questions if you have them and make sure you really do feel comfortable with your team. Hi, my name is Laura. And I just left a message and um, I realized I forgot to include some pertinent information. But I... Um, recently found out I have a unicornate uterus. I also recently found out I have PCOS and between that not ovulating, um, I did a one IUI cycle. It was unsuccessful. I was not pregnant. Um, my husband's sperm count is good. 
I have a lot of eggs since I have PCOS. And so moving forward, I think I'm moving forward with another IUI cycle, um, but part of me wants to just go to IVF. I worry about ovulating on the wrong side. I also worry about like multiples and having a smaller uterus. I'm 30, almost 32, and um, I'd like to have two kids. And so I was just wondering your thoughts and recommendations about IUI versus IVF. If you would recommend trying IUI, you know, for a second or third time, I appreciate your time and I love your podcast. Thank you for everything you do. You guys are asking the best questions and I just want to say, I love it. I just love how much ownership we're taking of our bodies and how much thought you're putting into these. And I also love your love for the podcast. So thank you. A unicornate uterus is what we were talking about previously. When we think about one bud of the uterus fails to develop at all. So you are left with one half of a uterine cavity. So you have a vagina, cervix, fine, but then half of a uterus, it's often tubular in shape, one fallopian tube. You still have two ovaries. Okay, so as far as concern about ovulating on the wrong side, I am not concerned about that. And that's because, remember my analogy of a fallopian tube. If you remember those things filled with air outside, you know, the mattress store, the car dealership, and they move and they wiggle all around, your fallopian tubes are like that. So that arm, that one tube that you have, it moves all over the place. So it can capture an egg from the other side. So that part we're not worried about. What we are worried about is that reproductive outcomes with a unicornate uterus and concomitant other issues. So number one, you have less space. Your uterus has less space. So my top concern is your top concern. I'm concerned about multiple pregnancy because already with a uterus that has half the space, you're at an increased risk for miscarriage, preterm birth, C-section for malpresentation, and then ectopic pregnancy. And the reason why ectopic pregnancy starts to rise is that anybody who has a malarian anomaly also has a higher chance of endometriosis. And then there's also something called a rudimentary horn, which I'm not going to go into fully, but let's just think a bit as that little bud of the other side, it's not totally absent. It partially fused or partially formed or has it in our cavity or could even have a tube and does put you at risk potentially for ectopic pregnancy, if that's the case. But what we really do see are these complications with the placenta. So miscarriage, preterm birth, growth restriction, high blood pressure, postpartum bleeding, And so understanding these overall outcomes are really important. All of those things I stated are higher risk when you have multiple pregnancies as well. So my patients with unicornate uterus, I have had a harder time getting them pregnant. They've gone through more transfers than the average person. They have a higher rate of loss. That's just what I've seen. So when I see people come in, I mean, typically you're getting this diagnosis as a part of your infertility evaluation because you don't have signs or symptoms of having a unicornate uterus. You can use tampons fine, sex is fine, your periods are fine, does not impact the cyclicity or the regularity of your period. So how do you know you have one? You don't until you start going for a fertility evaluation. And it can even be missed on regular ultrasound because regular ultrasound 
does not evaluate the fallopian tubes. You'll see two ovaries. And yeah, maybe the uterus is off to one side or maybe somebody says it's shadowed. But really, unless you're doing a complete evaluation, trying to look at inside of the uterus and fallopian tubes, very well may miss having a unicornate uterus or getting the diagnosis. I don't do ovulation induction in these patients because I don't want to take the increased risk of multiples. I suppose I could say very rare scenario in somebody who doesn't ovulate at all. Could we try with a goal of one egg only? But in the patient who does ovulate coming in with unexplained infertility, how sometimes we use ovulation with IUI as a lower risk treatment, it's not lower risk in this scenario because having twins or more is going to be so potentially devastating in this outcome. So for me, very often, especially if you ovulate on your own, we're looking at treatment like IVF because then we can find the best embryo, only challenge the uterus when we have that best embryo. We have the opportunity to synchronize uterus and embryo by doing a frozen embryo transfer. We have the opportunity to potentially control for endometriosis if we feel like that is a factor. So unicornate uterus, getting that diagnosis is a lot to handle because there's often no warning signs, as we said. And it's not that every pregnancy is going to go bad, but it's often you just don't know what is going to happen. So if we were going to just look at overall outcomes, what we're seeing is, and this is cumulative data because these aren't that common. So this is over 50 years of looking at 20 studies. So we see cumulative rate, 7% ectopic pregnancy, 34% first and second trimester loss, 20% preterm delivery, 10% fetal demise or stillbirth, 50% live birth rate. So those numbers are lower than you would expect for the general population. But when we do look at IVF studies and we look at cumulative chance of getting pregnant, it's the same. So not on a per transfer, but on a per patient basis. So maybe it takes you a little bit longer, or maybe there is a risk of pregnancy complications for sure, but it does look like IVF does help improve some of these outcomes. So take home message, multiples to me is unacceptable. If you don't ovulate, could maybe try low-dose ovulation induction medications, but your uterus is so, so important. So to me, strong consideration to fast track to IVF, especially considering the whole picture. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Apostrophe. With the temperatures starting to warm up, I'm so excited the summer is around the corner and getting ready and looking forward to the summer months. But I know that when I'm outside enjoying nature, I need to pick up supplies to prepare myself for summer adventures. And if you want to get your skin glowing in time for summer, it's time for you to get started with Apostrophe, who is sponsoring this episode. Apostrophe's goal is to help you feel confident in your own skin. So whether you're dealing with breakouts, signs of aging, or acne scarring, Apostrophe will help you love the skin you're in. I personally love that you get access to an expert dermatology team, a tailored treatment plan, it's simple to sign up for your first visit, and there is no in-person appointment or trip to the pharmacy needed. We have a special deal for our audience. Get your first visit for only $5 at apostrophe.com slash A-A-W when you use our code A-A-W. That's a savings of $15. This code is only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com 
slash AAW and click get started. Then use the code AAW at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. Thank you, Apostrophe, for sponsoring this episode. Hi, Dr. Crawford. I love your podcast so much. I listen all the time and find it super helpful. So thank you for that. I am in healthcare, so I feel like I know a lot of the topics you discuss at a surface level. But I have a friend who has been told that her fallopian tubes have alternating blockage. Sometimes they are slow on the right, sometimes on the left. And they recommended that she have a fallopian tube cannulation procedure done where they would guide a wire through her fallopian tubes hysteroscopically. And um, this is one topic I had not heard of and wondered your thoughts as a fertility specialist and if you knew success rates or had any thoughts about the procedure itself. Thanks so much. So the ways that we evaluate the fallopian tubes can be with an HSG test, a FIMBU test, or a surgery. Surgery is the gold standard, obviously. In surgery, you do what's called chromatubation, and this is putting a blue-colored dye mixed with water into the uterine cavity, and then you have a camera in through the belly button. This is called laparoscopy, and you push the dye through the uterus while you watch, and you can just see... The tubes will fill with the blue dye and then it will come out the fimbria or the end of the tube if the tube is open. You can also clearly see if there's a hydrocelpinx or a dilated or blocked fallopian tube. Now, fallopian tubes get blocked most commonly at the very end, and this is called distal, the end of the fallopian tube. And that makes sense because that's what's hanging around. That's what's exposed to whatever inflammation is happening in your peritoneal cavity your abdominal cavity. So if you have a distal tube blockage, that is totally different than what this question is asking about. If you have a distal tube blockage, we're also then concerned that is the tube also dilated? And that can be called a hydrosalpinx. And a hydrosalpinx is where the tube has lost its architecture and is starting to fill up with fluid. And for the lack of a better description, that fluid can get toxic and can leak back into the uterine cavity and decrease pregnancy rates, even with IVF. And that's why with a hydrocelpinx, we recommend removing the tubes or creating a proximal blockage. So separating the tube between the hydrocelpinx and the uterus. Now, proximal tubal dilation is, is really less common to be pathologic, if that makes sense. If your tube is blocked proximally, meaning no dye went into the tube at all, it is either a spasm of the fallopian tube or potentially some scar tissue on the uterine surface of it. So tubal cannulization is when you're doing hysteroscopy. So you put a camera in through the uterus and then you place a little catheter past that opening. Proximal tube is the opening of the tube to the uterus. And then you're pushing the dye through that catheter. Honestly, people act like this is curing your tubal blockage. To me, this is just getting you the answer if the tube is just spasmed or not. Meaning if I put the catheter through and then I push dye and I can get it out, the tube wasn't really blocked. It was just a proximal spasm. And if I put the dye in there and it still doesn't come up the end, the tube was just actually blocked and maybe it was somewhere later on. So this is an option in my mind, to get to the answer of if the tube is really blocked or not. If it's alternating between signs, it's so tubal spasm. If you've had one tube open on once and one tube open on another HSG, I'm not sure why we're spending time, money, risk going through surgery. 
if you do an HSG, what you're doing is the same idea. You're putting the dye in the uterus, but you're just washing with x-ray. Now, most of the time you can see those small tubal openings, but there's a lot of operator issues here. How hard you push the dye can cause the uterus to distend really fast and can cause intense cramps. If you've had an HSG, you know this to be true, maybe, but that intensity or that sudden distension is what can cause those tubes to spasm. So proximal blockage honestly depends on the full picture. If the other tube is distally blocked and this one is proximally blocked, I always say it's very unrealistic for us to imagine that something happens to one tube and not the other. The tubes are exposed to almost the exact same environment and with the exception of an ovarian surgery right there, if you have endo, they're both exposed. If you have chlamydia, they're both exposed. If you had a ruptured appendix, yeah, the right's going to be worse, but the left is also exposed to that infection and inflammation. So if one tube is distally blocked, I don't really believe the other is fully normal, even if it's open, right? A tube has to do a lot more than just be open. It also has to help facilitate egg and sperm meeting. It has little contractions. It has a lot of jobs besides just openness. So honestly, this is a procedure that I don't do now. I rarely did it even back in training just because the success rates weren't great, even though it did help some people get pregnant. And again, I don't think it helped them necessarily get pregnant. They're just people who didn't have tubal disease and then they got pregnant. Some people will say, oh, well, it flushed out the tube and it did help them, but it's not really opening up the tube. If you have scar tissue in front of the tube from the uterus end, of course, that is a little bit different. For understanding, a lot of people do this at surgery, so that's where the extra risk comes. There are people doing it under fluoro, like at the time of HSG. Certainly, that's more uncomfortable but less risky. A large portion of people, when they get ready for this, are shown to just have open tubes on HSG again. Secondarily, what the actual procedure is, is putting that little catheter in the tube and then pushing a guide wire into the tube and then advancing the catheter over it to get past the blockage or the obstruction. Again, if it's inexpensive, if it's not painful, if it is not delaying care a lot, it's not going to harm you. Certainly most people who did get pregnant afterward got pregnant in the first few months and repeat occlusion is actually relatively high. So it's certainly an option, but just in the scheme of things, I think it depends on so many different factors. You'd have to be absolutely the right patient for this to be worthwhile of doing. Hey, Dr. Natalie, thanks so much for all of the amazing information that you put out for women. Over a year ago, I was diagnosed with a small five millimeter spot of calcification in my lower uterus. Um, this was diagnosed through a transvaginal ultrasound. And upon researching this diagnosis, I came to realize how rare it seems to be. There isn't a lot of good information out there about how it impacts fertility or why it occurs. And not even my doctors could give me good information as to the why. So I'm curious to hear your take as a reproductive endocrinologist. And I bet this could help other women who are looking for information on this seemingly rare condition. Thanks again and bye. This is a good, good question. A uterine calcification, it is overall a really rare finding. So most people will say it's about half a percentage of all people might have one. And certainly depends on 
your age or your history. So the most common thing, a calcification, let's just say it's like a little ball of abnormal cellular growth or tissue growth and ossification, which makes it appear really bright. On ultrasound, water is dark, black, bone is bright, white. And your tissues in the reproductive world tend to be in the world of gray. So something bright white definitely shows up on ultrasound. Most common is that when you go in and you take these out and you look at it, most of these are actually going to be remnant something from abortion or from a miscarriage. So a little piece of placental tissue that got calcified because it got left behind. I've also seen them from prior hysteroscopy, maybe a prior IUD insertion where there was some damage to the uterine cavity in some way, and this happened in the healing process. Other studies, just these are case reports, they're so rare, have maybe shown an increased association with endometritis, which is just an inflammation of the uterine lining, with endometrial polyps, and then also with endometrial hyperplasia, which is precancerous. They've been associated with abnormal bleeding and also infertility. So if you have a calcification, sometimes we don't always know why. If you've had a prior pregnancy, miscarriage, uterine instrumentation in any type of way, it's probably due to that. The good news is that at surgery, so hysteroscopy, a day surgery procedure where you put a camera in the uterus, you can remove this calcified area. You can see it very clearly. The majority of patients get pregnant after removal. So if this is a cause of secondary infertility or whatever was going on, if it's found and your doctor recommends removal, I definitely support that. And so does the data because we see really great restoration of fertility in a lot of these cases. Hi, I'm 29 and I just had surgery to remove stage one endometriosis, which we didn't know I had until um, I was having a lot of pain and he got in there and removed it. I'm curious if you have supplements that you would recommend um, for me as we are trying to just then conceive naturally, um, but he's really harped on keeping inflammation down and wants me to be on ibuprofen every day until I get a positive pregnancy test. And I was wondering what your thought was about ibuprofen every day and what supplements you might recommend while we're trying to conceive naturally. Thank you so much for all you do. Oh, this is so interesting. Okay. So let's just divide this into a couple of things. And one, I'm including it in this episode because we know that endometriosis can impact our anatomy. It is obstructive and tissue damaging in its latter stages. So in stage three and four, and certainly if you go through surgery and you get a diagnosis of endometriosis, even if your tubes are open and you have stage three or four disease, the evidence supports fast-tracking to IVF. When you're in stage one and two, your doctor's right that inflammation is a huge issue, and so trying to decrease inflammation, I support. However, I don't support it via using ibuprofen or NSAIDs. Now, NSAIDs are non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, and Motrin, ibuprofen are such examples. And what is interesting is that they impact prostaglandin synthesis, which is part of the inflammatory pathway. However, using NSAIDs around ovulation can prevent that follicle from ovulating, from rupturing, and allowing that mature egg out. Because prostaglandins 
are really important in the ovulatory process. So you'll actually see us not recommend any of our patients use Motrin or ibuprofen or any of these type of medications for pain while they're undergoing fertility treatments. Using them on your period is different. They're not that long acting, but using them after that, I don't recommend at all. So I find it really interesting that it was recommended to use them every day because long-term use is not recommended if you're trying to get pregnant. So we recommend Tylenol for pain, and I would say NSAIDs if you're having your period, but not at other times in the cycle. The supplements and the lifestyle factors that I recommend for endo is all about decreasing inflammation. So you're so right. So certainly the number one way that you drop inflammation is not in a supplement form, right? It is by getting sleep, not over-challenging your body, listening to it, and treating it kindly with food. So foods that we eat, the alcohol that we drink, the marijuana we smoke, those are some of our most inflammatory things that we do. If we're coming over to the supplement end of things, I recommend omega-3 fatty acids, vitamin D, CoQ10. I also then recommend for endo specifically, vitamin C, vitamin E, and N-acetylcysteine. So not everybody needs to take all of these things. Always talk about your supplements with your doctor. Remember supplements are not regulated and there's things that can be in them that can totally interfere with your fertility treatments. So you don't want to go in a more is more mentality, just not the case. Number one thing you can do to drop inflammation is not taking pills. It's changing your lifestyle and getting sleep. If I was going to pick one thing, it's going to be sleep. So make sure you've got a full comprehensive plan with endometriosis. We know that it comes back. It has a higher risk of lifelong infertility, subfertility, taking longer between pregnancies, running out of eggs faster. And make sure that you really talk with your doctor about your entire goals for your family and getting you pregnant as soon as possible if that's your goal. And if you're not trying to get pregnant, then talk through options for pain control, but also to try to help suppress ovulation as we know that does help overall burden of disease and improve fertility later. Okay, y'all. Well, I really love this episode. These were such fantastic questions about your uterus, fallopian tubes, and your anatomy. I hope you learned something as well. I would love it if you want to call in and ask your own questions sometime. The phone number here is 657-229-3672. Again, 657-229-3672. As always, you can ask questions on Monday on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD. Sign up for the newsletter to stay in touch and follow us over on YouTube. Thanks, friends. Thank you all for listening to As a Woman. It would mean so much if you could rate, review, and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every Sunday. I hope you learned something new, and I hope you share it with someone in your life. Be sure to follow along on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD. And check out the YouTube channel, Natalie Crawford, MD. If you're interested in becoming a patient, you can also follow Fora Fertility. I'm so thrilled to have you here, part of the community that amplifies others as a woman. <laughs>